Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Isaac DeVries, your host for today's episode, and I have a quick announcement. We're expanding our internship opportunities, and we are seeking someone to help with live streaming episodes on YouTube. The benefits include spending time with psychoanalysts, and if you're interested, you can email Tracy Morgan at tracynewbooksinpsychoanalysis at gmail.com. Today, I get to speak with Dr. Danielle Nafo about her book, The New Sexual Landscape, which was published this year by Confer Books. Dr. Danielle Nafo is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, a professor and supervisor, and an author. She's currently a professor in the clinical psychology doctoral uh, program at Long Island University's CW Post Campus and faculty and supervisor at NYU's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She's published nine books and dozens of articles on many subjects, including the psychology of art, creativity in psychotherapy, unconscious fantasies, sex and gender, working with trauma, immigration, and psychosis. More recently, she has turned her focus to the effects of technology on the human psyche and relational life. Her book, The Age of Perversion, Desire and Technology in Psychoanalysis and Culture, won the ABPP Uh, 2018 Best Book Award. Her most recent book is The New Sexual Landscape and Contemporary Psychoanalysis, and she maintains a private practice in Manhattan and Great Neck, New York. So welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, As always, the first question we ask on this podcast is to the extent that one can know their motivations, what what motivated you to write this book? Um, well, I was asked to write this book. <laughs> so it's the first of my books that I didn't choose uh, per se. However, I agreed to write it um, because uh, I, I am interested in sexuality and gender and technology all of uh, all of these subjects are very prominent in this book and because i have some concern that uh, psychoanalysis has become desexualized uh, i'm not the only person who says this um, people have been observing it for the last few decades that um, psychoanalysts are no longer writing about sex. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Andre Green wrote about it. Peter Fonagy wrote about it. Um, uh, he even uh, looked at PEP articles and found a, a, a big decrease in uh, articles about sexuality. So um, I felt that this is really a shame because uh, mm-hmm. sexuality, uh, beginning with Freud, was so central to uh, psychoanalytic theory. And um, I feel that psychoanalysis is best positioned to uh, speak about 
sexuality, the complexity of sexuality, uh, the, the, the logic of the unconscious that goes into sexuality uh, because we deal with the unconscious, because we deal with fantasies, with defenses, with conflicts, with the irrational, um, all of these things that go into uh, our sexual lives, I think, uh, make, make psychoanalysts the people who should be talking about sexuality. So it was very distressing to me that, that uh, sexuality was disappearing or appearing very, very little in psychoanalytic literature. And I wanted this book to bring it back, uh, bring sexuality back as a pr primordial activity uh, for humans and uh, and the, the erotic life, the erotization of sexuality. So that that's that's the conscious uh, motivation. Yeah, right. I think the book really achieves that. To be honest, I mean, I, 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 I we'll get there in just a second. I want to ask though before we we do, um, what what happened in your in your assessment? Where did sexuality go in psychoanalysis? Like how? Why did we lose track of it? Why did we stop talking about it? What yeah. replaced it? Yeah. What's the story? Yeah. Well, I think there is a story, and I became a detective <laughs> okay. to try to to try to find out what was the story. How could this be? You know, sexuality was such a central part of psychoanalytic writing, and then uh, and then not. So I think uh, some some of what I came up with has to do with social trends, and some of it has to do with. Um, uh, a shift of interest in psychoanalysis itself. So I'll start with that. Mm -hmm. In psychoanalysis, um, there has been a shift uh, of interest to pre-edipal uh, relation and relational uh, focus. So um, when we're talking about relational uh, theories, relational words, attachment theory has has become very big. You find tons of literature on attachment in the last uh, few decades on relational uh, theory, on early uh, relationships, pr primarily with the mother, dyadic relationships. And um, there's been a, a jettisoning of the Oedipal phase where uh, in the past that has been, although Freud said we were born uh, sexual beings and we're sexual beings our whole life, the Oedipal stage with the triadic, the, the negotiating three, the, the jealousies, the passions, the intense emotions, the sexuality, the fantasies, all of that uh, come up around the Oedipal phase. And so the, the, the more recent focus on pre-Oedipal, I think, also uh, got rid of the, the more sexual uh, attention and interest. So I think that's one of the things. Also, the in interest in uh, personality disorders that are also considered more early, uh, uh, you know, having early pathology. So I think that shift to pre-edible <clears throat> got rid of 
sexuality from the psychoanalytic perspective, more attention on relational issues, interpersonal issues, and, and attachment issues. Um, from a social perspective, I think that, um, you know, uh, um, we've either, I don't know if we've become more puritanical, but, you know, the AIDS epidemic scared people. And, for, uh, uh, you know, when something like that happened, people started getting afraid of sex uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, you know, Me Too movement, the, the sexual harassment uh, cases, all of these, um, these social issues that put sexuality and in, a, in a negative sense, these things are going to cause harm. Uh, either emotional harm or physical harm. And so people started backing off, I think, uh, from dealing with sexuality. And the third reason is um, uh, uh, perhaps has to do with the political correctness movement and uh, feeling that this is an untouchable subject. Oh, dear. Hmm. Do so would you say that, though, that the pre-Oedipal is not sexual? No. I think we are sexual beings from, from birth. But sexuality mm -hmm. takes a different form uh, throughout life. And so, um, and, and so we are polymorphous perverse, according to Freud, in, inf in infancy. We want every we get we we get off on anyone and anything, um, but then with socialization, civilization, um, our sexual our sexual desires get constricted. Don't do this. Don't do that. You're supposed to do this. If you're a girl, you're supposed to behave this way. If you're a boy, you're supposed to behave that way. And little by little, our sexuality uh, becomes more and more constrained. Um, to live in a civilized society, so to speak. But then comes uh, perversion, uh, which I believe is a, a way out, a way to rebel against those limits, to go beyond those limits. Um, and, uh, and, and our times today uh, that want to go back to, we can do what we want. Uh, we don't want these, these constraints. We don't want these limits, mm -hmm. but I'm probably getting ahead of myself because we're, well, we're getting ahead. Speaking of getting ahead, what I, what I was thinking we could do, because the, the book is laid out in these four really, uh, related, but distinct chapters, right? The first one is on gender. The second one is on sex and sexual. And the third one is on porn. And the mm -hmm. fourth is on technical sex. So mm -hmm. let's just stay with the sex part. And I got to say that for me, at least, this book provided, I think, the most helpful clarification and amplification of the Freudian understanding of sexuality. And mm -hmm. I, I don't mean it just as infantile sexuality, right? But I, I mean that for the first time, I could really see how sex, the erotic, the sensual, the sexual is just pervasive in everything we do from like dribbling basketballs to interacting with colleagues, mm -hmm. like all of it, mm -hmm. right? It's all sexual. And 
I personally would have been considerably helped uh, had this text been assigned to me at the beginning of my clinical training mm -hmm. in graduate school, but also at Psychoanalytic Institute. Um, so I'm hoping that you'd be willing to kind of walk us through your understanding of the psychoanalytic or Freudian conception of sexuality and how that's different from other conceptions. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. You know, like in the sense that it, it just, it, that's it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it really, it really is it drives this whole book. Well, I think that when people are uh, have criticized Freud in the past for being too sex-obsessed, right, it's because they didn't understand his theory. The whole theory of libido is not just sexuality, the sexual act. It's about the life force, right? The, the, the sexuality is everywhere. However, we do, you know, uh, I and my co-author, uh, Rocco Labosco, do take sexuality beyond uh, just the physical realm right, into right. the social realm. And uh, um, I think Freud hinted at that. I don't think he went as far as, as, far as we go. So um, I'm not sure what you want me to say about yeah. Freudian theory. Well, I think it's that, that step that you got, that you both go the beyond where it's like in the social, mm -hmm. it's in social relating. Like I'm, I'm thinking about some of the passages where you talk about how, uh, you know, for example, interviewing for a job where there's mm -hmm. seduction involved, right. Mm -hmm. Or in the, the different power dynamics that structure human relating, Right. And how the yeah. sadomasochistic the perversion like is in those interactions. I think those were the aspects of sexuality that I, I think this yes. book really. Yes, we have. Yeah, can you uh, say more about that? Absolutely. Anything that uh, social perversions, when we're talking about so, how, how perversion or sexuality comes up, uh, well, Andrea Salenza, for example, says every relationship is uh, sexualized in our minds, in our unconscious minds. It doesn't matter who the person is, how old they are, what race they are, what gender they are, what uh, uh, whether it's forbidden or allowed. That that it's part of who we are. Uh, it's part of what attracts us to people. It's part of what may repel us uh, from people. But the idea of of uh, uh, of wanting to go beyond, of wanting to to rebel, of wanting the forbidden, of wanting to to uh, break down limits or constraints, to to do more, to have more, to be more, uh, that exists in the sexual realm, but it exists also uh, in the non-sexual realm. The dehu if we're talking about perversion dehumanization, uh, exploitation, um, uh, disavow, all of these things that we attribute to perverse uh, behaviors exist in, in other types of relationships as well. The way your boss might treat you, right? The way uh, we see this in government, we see this in, in, mm -hmm. in uh, corporations, we see this in uh, so many different, and we see this even in psychoanalytic relationships. Who has the power? Uh, who has the power? How is the power used? Um, 
Is it exploitative? Uh, is there a, an objectification? Is there a dehumanization? Is there some some forcefulness of a need to penetrate, to control? All the same thing, same uh, adverbs, same verbs uh, or adjectives that we would use to describe sexuality and different forms of sexuality, we could we can apply to other forms of relatedness. Uh, as we say, the genitals are you know you can use them or not the the dynamics are the same mhm do you, so do you see or where do you see the sexual in this sense that we're talking about now do you see it in what's going on with covid and the protest the george floyd protests i mean i picked up the book began reading it and like a week later the protest broke out uh-huh and there's something I don't know. I'm wondering. I'm wondering what you see there. Yes. Yes. Well, um, I've been asked about sex in the time of uh, Corona, and um, no, tell, tell me. I think. Well, I think uh, there's a lot going on here, or a lot, even a lot not going on. There's a fear of kissing, a fear of touching, breathing on someone. Uh, the very things that that bring us together that we consider erotic um there's privacy issues you know kids are always home if you have children there's avoidance of certain situations that have potential for disease transmission so we're back into that fearful place of of transition but but i i think too about um what's happening as the um i think of the time we're living in as the i can't breathe time so the the george floyd um who who was uh killed and with a knee on his neck kept saying i can't breathe the covid we have all these images of people on ventilators not being able not being able to breathe um the climate uh <laughs> the climate problem causing so much mm-hmm. pollution that we're uh can we breathe in other words we're fighting for our lives now uh this is a battle with death you know that i have a proclivity for existentialism as well and um so so i think that that that's where we're at now where sexuality comes in i think people have to be very creative these days um and find new new forms of sexuality that are not frightening um you know people are are more online now their sexuality is more online porn watching has spiked over 20% during this covid um uh period um you know uh, uh phone sex sex toys virtual sex bathing creative positions all of these things um, are, you know, the, the good thing about sexuality is that it, it can go as far as our imaginations go. So if one is imaginative, one can, um, one can go places. But I think, uh, the idea that sex is dangerous has returned in the way that it was during the AIDS epidemic. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's a scary thing. Um, uh, but, but I heard one person say, you are your safest sex partner. 
So again, <laughs> the social isolation, uh, and now you just have to satisfy yourself. Uh, uh, however, when people are faced with mortality, usually uh, it prompts a, a stronger sexual desire and behavior to cope with that. So, um, so one of the things that um, one of my students told me is that there's a new theme on internet porn of uh, uh, coronavirus-themed porn. And, right, and right. You have people wearing masks and gloves and hazmat suits, and this now this is becoming eroticized. The thing about sex is that anything can become eroticized. Anything. The Eiffel Tower, a bicycle, a b- b- balloon popping. I mean, the 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 number of fetishes that I've come across in my in my research is is endless. And so the coronavirus now it's it's uh, threatening, but often we take what is threatening and turn it into desire. Robert Stoller wrote a lot about that. Yeah, when you when you were talking about. Uh this as a kind of I can't breathe moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking also of some some of what you report in this book uh, around the rise of BDSM mm-hmm. and sadomasochistic you know, dynamics and choking in particular. Yes, yes, and, yes. And a you know that this is I have I have patients who are sharing also that this this uh, experience of of choking during sex is now, you know, it's just more common in my patient's speech. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that you can say something more about the relationship of sex and death. This, this is a theme that runs through your book. Yes. I think. What, what are you seeing there? How are sex and death, sex and aggression, sex and hate, Sex and uh, you know all the, all of that sadism and masochism. How what's the relationship? How are they linked? What's going on there? <laughs> okay, well it's complex, um, but um, well there are two questions here that you're asking. One is what's the relationship between sex and death? The other is why is BDSM popular, <laughs> becoming more and more popular these days? So let me let me answer the first one first. Um, uh, there is an intimate relationship between sex and death. Um, as, as Freud himself, in the end, he said there are two drives, sex and death, eros and thanatos. So these are, these are our drives. One attaches us to life and one brings us back to a non-existence. And when we are threatened with death, with mortality, even with the knowledge that we are mortal, because most of the times we deny death. Ernest Becker wrote a wonderful uh, book called The Denial of Death, showing us that that we have to, otherwise it's very difficult to function. That's why we are having difficulty functioning now, because it's harder to deny death when it's in your face. Um, But the more it's in our face, the more we need to do things to reassure ourselves that we are alive, that we are surviving, that we are enjoying even. Uh, and so so this existential predicament that we all are born into, if you're born, that means you're going to die. 
These are the only things we know for sure. Everything mm-hmm. else from from point A to point B uh, is up in the air. But uh, uh, so it's always there somewhere in our unconscious mm-hmm. minds. Some things bring it to, to the fore. If somebody we know dies, if somebody we know, gets, if we get sick, oh, all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, I'm flesh and blood. I'm, I'm a mortal creature. Well, one of the ways that we fight this, that we do battle with this, is with sex. Sexuality makes us feel alive. It's the thing that brings life, right? Before birth control, you had sex, you had children, <laughs> you reproduced. Uh, now, you know, since birth control, the, the sexuality and reproduction have been separated. But, um, uh, but it's still in there. It's in our evolutionary unconscious that sex is a way to fight death, to uh, be pro-life, and to make life, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and, to, and it's an antidote for our own deadness, not just death per se, but our own sense of deadness. Sometimes when we're feeling dead, we want to feel enlivened. Sexuality makes us feel enlivened. I have many patients who are depressed. When they're depressed, they go to porn sites. They want that that boost of energy, that boost of life. I'm alive. I I I'm I feel the eros, right? The attachment. So so it's very primordial. The sexuality, it's a drive. Um, what we do with it as humans, we eroticize that. We can eroticize anything, as I said. Um, but sexuality itself is is a drive. Um and and uh and that's not argued today. Cognitive neuroscience has said has supported Freud's drive theory that we have these drives. We have a drive for sexuality. We have a drive for aggression. Uh, mm-hmm. That brings us to BDSM. Why yeah. BDSM? Why do people enjoy uh, uh, sadistic, masochistic uh, b- domination uh, behaviors? Well, there are several psychoanalytic theories that would uh, support this. Uh, a lot, Freud wrote in his project, right, that we are uh, the, the species that is dependent on our parents for the longest period of time. And because mm-hmm. of that, that, that creates a lot of problems. It creates a dependency, a helplessness, uh, you know, that, that someone else is controlling our fate every day, every day. And, um, and a fear of, of loss or abandonment or abandonment of love, you know, taking back of one's love or one's approval. So right there, it, it creates a blueprint for a sadomasochistic relationship, right? For years. How so? Well, for years as babies, as children, as pubertal beings, as adolescents, we are dependent on other people. They c- control us. They tell us what to do. They can punish us. Mm. They can, uh, you know, they can be benevolent uh, dictators, but dictators nonetheless. You're going to do mm-hmm. this is my house. When you get a job, you can do what you want. Until then, you do what I say, right? This is how parents talk. Um, 
and uh, and so children are raised in 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 that uh, sense of helplessness, of need, of fear of abandonment, fear of displeasing, uh, control. Uh, they might fight. They can be a rebellious, oppositional child or a rebellious adolescent. Right? Uh, we pathologize those things, and yet. The, these are the ways that uh, the terrible twos, these are the ways that children say, no, I'm my own person. You're not going to tell me what to do. Maybe I'll torture you for a change. Um, and that that torturing uh, <laughs> can go back and forth, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so it's embedded in our relationships because they go on so long and because one is so obviously in control. And the other one has to submit to that control. There is a there is this BDSM uh, blueprint uh, that 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 uh, that uh, gets set up early on and throughout throughout life. And so some people then, as I said, everything can become eroticized. So that that dynamic can be eroticized, particularly if it is traumatic for someone. Stoller uh, was the one who really helped us understand how trauma can be eroticized by uh, turning it around. That a lot of people who have experienced trauma in their lives develop a sexual preference that repeats seems to repeat a certain type of trauma but then mm. s- turns it around in the sense that the person now is in control of the scenario right so yeah, they're yeah, going yeah. back to the place of trauma but now they're they're saying but i'm doing it i'm doing it i'm turning it around so there's a risk and there's uh and there's the uh the pleasure of being able to survive that risk. I think this is a great, I, what you just said, I, I think really answers my question about uh, how the sexual is outside the bedroom and in everything, mm-hmm. you know? So I thank you for that. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that our political context can be understood without attending to these sadomasochistic dynamics? <laughs> I, I'm not asking this, you to I comment. Could, I, could, I could speak for a whole hour on that, but I don't yeah, really want to get too it, far off. But I think they're very much in there. Uh, yeah, right. Very much in there. Uh, you see people being, uh, you know, uh, having to agree and adore, and otherwise you're out. And there's this punitive and uh, who's who's, you know, who's who's adoring me, who's going to uh, and who can I and it's punitive. There's a lot of punishment and, and uh, bad mouthing. And there's a, a lot of sadomasochism in our uh, current political uh, world. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'll 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 retract and move us along so that uh, we don't get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, let me turn to the chapter on porn. Okay. 92 million people visit Pornhub per day. Yeah, about 100 nowadays. So that's greater than all of the visits to Netflix, Amazon, mm-hmm. and 
and Twitter combined. Yes, yes. So what's porn, the porn land? keeps the internet alive. <laughs> Many yes, people yes. think that if there was no porn, the internet, we would not have internet. So the, you know, your book paints a landscape. Each chapter is a landscape of these different topics. What, what's the landscape uh, in, the, in porn right now? What changes are you seeing? How is it changing us? Is porn society's collective unconscious? I think so. I think so. It's the id. It's the id. It's completely politically incorrect. Uh, so um, I had said before that people. one of the reasons people are afraid to write about sex is, is because of the political correctness of police. Um, if you say this wrong or that wrong, you're attacked. But in porn, there is no political correctness police. The opposite. Everything goes. And mm-hmm. and the more something is um, is considered uh, politically incorrect in in society, the more we see it show up in pornography. So you have incest, you have uh, racist porn, you have um, child porn, which is huge. Not just on uh, Pornhub, but on the dark web, it is filled. Eighty percent of the dark web is child porn. Um, so all of these things that we consider terrible or the most perverse are are flourishing on uh, on internet porn. What's your assessment of that? How do you how do you, how are you thinking or making sense of that? Well, it's what. What I said before when I was talking about perversion, that it's the part of us that wants to go beyond, that doesn't want to be limited, that doesn't want to. There's an attraction for what people are telling you not to do. We are a rebellious species, (laughs) you know. Um, Mm -hmm. We are a rebellious species. We do not. uh, uh, We may be very. prim and proper and obeying laws and and moral beings and then we have this private uh fantasy life uh or the life of of uh, the visits on online porn that can be so completely different from how a person is living that's why i wrote in the book that the you know i've been an analyst for many decades and the one thing, usually I can, I pride myself that I can size up people pretty quickly. Uh, but the one thing that always surprises me is their s- sexual lives. It's, it, 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 I, can, I can't guess it. I can't know it until they tell it to me. And sometimes that's not for years. Some people keep their sexuality secret for years. And um, it, there's something about sexuality that can be compartmentalized in a way that other spheres of life uh, are not. And so there's something very interesting about that. And that and that gets expressed on these Internet porn sites where anything can go. Anything goes. Right. And, and yeah, like I'm, I have one patient right now who's talking to me a lot about how uh, well, I have a couple of patients actually who are sharing exactly this, right? That in their porn fantasies or in their in their uh, porn activities, 
anything goes. Mm -hmm. But in their actual relationships, it's so uncomfortable and difficult for them to actually voice mm -hmm. what they want, mm -hmm. what they want. Yeah. And what, what the design, why, why is that? Why is it so hard in our relationships to ask for what we want, ask for what's pleasurable, what's sexual? Well, because sexuality is very complex and it involves a lot of things that that's why we talk about the mystery of sex. You know, it is mysterious, mostly to ourselves, because so much goes into it. When two people are having sex, there are other people in the room. There is past coming in the room. There's traumas in the room. There are all kinds of ambivalences and conflicts. And so uh, it's no wonder that people have um, perversions. It's no wonder that people have uh, uh, inhibitions. Um, you know, sex, when we think about all the functions that sex plays for for human beings it's it's a huge huge uh spectrum so they it can be people who are working through a trauma who want revenge uh stoller wrote about that wanting to get beyond the self to transcend to you know have a transcendent experience to fight mortality and death to break limits to do the forbidden right to express love, to express hate, to, to find novelty, um, the desire to control, to master, to dominate, to uh, uh, addiction. People become addicted to porn, to sex, right? We have sex addicts. So um, it's very, very varied and, and complex. And one of the things, one of the reasons why it can be so strange to us, our own sexuality, I've had so many people come to me and say, I don't know why I want this. I don't know why I'm attracted mm. to this, um, is because sexuality is one of those things that doesn't get mirrored as we're growing up. So almost all of our behaviors get some kind of reaction, positive or negative, from our parents, but our parents feel uncomfortable uh, mirroring budding sexuality when a young child touches themselves. The parent will usually just look away or they'll say, go in your room and do that. In other words, they're already banishing sexuality mm -hmm. into this private place. and It's not social. Um, the child already gets a, a message that this is not something uh, that's acceptable in social life. And so um, it's, it's the one area of behavior that doesn't get that, that, that acceptance, that mirroring, that validation. And so there's some shame associated with it, a secrecy, a hiddenness. And, and internet porn is the perfect place for that hiddenness to find its match, right? Its object. Mm -hmm. Because there's a porn for every everyone's desire, and if not, they can create it. I want to. I want to jump. I'm going to continue this these themes, but add in this techno aspect because mm -hmm. so, because your last book was really big on this, and certainly a major um, aspect of this or lens in in this book is a lens on 
what's happening technologically in our world as it relates to sex. Is it okay with you if I read a section from the book? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so this is in the technosex chapter. It's the fourth chapter. And, and you're writing about um, how machines are becoming more pervasively included in our world. Mm-hmm. And so this last chapter takes up this, this fact. And you write that the difference between the, the human and the machine is going to continue eroding. So here's the section that I, that I highlighted. Once identity is untethered to a particular body or can become linked to many bodies or forms, the virtual quality of the self and identity becomes obvious. What's left that's real then? Memory? And once we learn to erase old memories and implant new ones, what then? All that once seemed real and stable, clearly bounded sexuality, gender and identity, appropriate family lifestyles, school safety, climate stability, democratic norms, books made of pages, leaving the house to shop, writing letters, all these now seem constructed, derivative, and even illusory, a trick of agreements. There is a cataclysmic upheaval, a crisis that will call out the very best and worst in humanity. Into this roiling, and into this roiling scene, the robots are entering, adding additional challenges to the assumed veracity of human identity. As we begin to join with our machines, it's only natural that forms of them made in our own image should then be walking among us. Throughout our history, we have made ourselves through reproduction, And now we can use our machines to make ourselves as machines, smarter, faster, stronger, sexier, and potentially more dangerous. Our machines will indeed replace us, may well indeed replace us. And and should we reach a point where we create matches that are sentient and possess a self, well then, the last bastion of conventional identity will fall. You talk about surgery. Uh, you talk about the way that robots are already doing surgeries. They're teaching, they're driving cars, they're maintaining homes, they're diffusing bombs, Mm -hmm. they're exploring space, they're fighting crime, they're waging wars, they're surveilling us, they're cooking food, they're acting as pets, they play instruments. And you also then highlight sex dolls. Yes. And AI and the technology... I'd love to hear anything you have to say about the landscape of technosex, where we're going and what, what your concerns are. It's really fascinating. It is fascinating. And a lot of people, go ahead. I want to say, and also alarming. Yeah. 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 It's both. It's both. And I, I hope that we try to show that it it can be both. Um, it, It shows, uh, you know, one of the things we do in both of these last two books is to show the parallels between perversion and technology, uh, because they both uh, are ways that humans try to go further, to do more, to be more. Uh, that's what perversion is about, and that's what technology does too. Uh, technology is the mechanization of the pleasure principle maturely informed by the reality principle it's how we actually do this so i uh, because i'm writing about these things i've also um come across you know patients look for people who can uh uh who they can uh who can relate to these to their uh preferences Mm-hmm. without judgment or with as little judgment as possible. Oh. Our our world is changing. The tech the tech 
uh, revolution is the biggest sea change in, in generations. Um, our world is changing. It's changing fast. And just think about yourselves. Um, you're younger than I am, but just, just my age, how much I've had to catch up. Uh, even today, this new technology, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to get on? Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's frightening how quickly things are changing. But every technology uh, um, also has sex driving it. Some, so, someone said that for every new technology, there was a sexual reason for it. So we can think of the Internet. We can think of some of these um, teledildonics and cybersex and and internet porn and, and uh, avatars and all of these things that that are uh, abundant in uh, in sexual preferences these days, so that now you can have sexual you can have sex with somebody uh, who's not present uh, with you, just the way we're doing therapy uh, with people, and we don't have to be in the same room. Well, people can have sex now with people, and they can be acro- across the world. And they can put on these body suits and uh, through the computer, they can stimulate each other in the places that they want to stimulate each other. And the sensation is actually tactile uh, and temperature based so that the, the feeling is that the person is actually being pleasured or uh, penetrating or whatever uh, with this other person, even though they're not together. This is what technology is doing now. Um, the other thing technology, the other th- way that technology is entering uh, people's lives is, of course, these very hyper-realistic sex dolls and, th- and now the sex robots. Um, the sex dolls are just these beautiful um, silicone sculptures uh, that uh, have all the orifices and uh, their their sense of touch is very similar to human uh, human skin. Um, and and I've interviewed at least fifteen men who have fallen in love with these dolls, not just to have sex with them, who have these dolls as their partners. Some of them marry the dolls, so they've completely eschewed uh, human relationships and um, and uh, are with these uh, dolls as their partners. Um, and, uh, many of them are waiting for the robots because the robot will have more artificial intelligence and can speak to them and can move in ways that the dolls can't. So this is, uh, this is the movement forward. David Levy, who's a a British, um, a roboticist and artificial intelligence expert says that we're going to be marrying, uh, robots within a few decades. And uh, he's not alone in this thinking. Are you concerned about the technological extinction of the, of the human? Um, yes. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Uh, Bill Gates is concerned. Uh, a lot of people who are in, uh, in tech, uh, Elon Musk is concerned. Um, the, I think the tech geniuses are all concerned because they see that we create these robots. Humans create the robots, but the robots exceed us in every way. 
And if they exceed us in every way, then they can destroy us also. They can, at some point, be independent of us and act in a way uh, that um, that is destructive towards the human race. So, would you would you say? Let me. One thing that's nice about this book is that um, it. We shouldn't it end really, on that note. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm. I, well, what I was going to say is that um, to connect this to some of what we were talking about earlier. I'm wondering if you would say that this techno, you know, what we're talking about right now in the tech, uh, technological extinction of the human, is this the culmination of the death drive in mm. sex? Mm. Is that, is this, is, does the death drive win through sex at the end of the day via technology? I think so. Uh, to some degree, I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. Because, uh, because technology isn't—it's about objects. It's about uh, these are dead objects. When I see, you know, uh, when I see these people with, uh, um, we humanize them. We we project. We animate them. But the objects are 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 dead. Just because they move doesn't mean they're human. And so um, it is a form of moving away from the human and prioritizing the dead, the dehumanized, what is dehumanized, right? So, yes, that is one way of seeing it. We're almost out of time. I'd like to ask, um, is there anything, well, two questions. Is there anything that we, I know we didn't get to the chapter on gender. but We didn't, um, yes. No, maybe we'll have to set up another interview just for the gender chat. Right, right. That's a good um, But is there, there anything two, else that you would... two. In gender yeah. two, it's people wanting to um, uh, not be constrained by fate, the fate of, of the bodies they were born into um, or of the genders they were assigned to, at, 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 assigned with at birth. Um, and we're seeing now, you know, this multiplicity and fluidity of gender um, as a way of saying, no, I, I define myself. Um, I'm not going to be defined by uh, society, parents, even biology, right? <laughs> Blake, uh, open space. If there's anything else you want to say about the book that we didn't get to cover. <laughs> I mean, I, the book, there's so much in the book. <laughs> I think what I think what I the only thing to leave people with is that we're at a we're 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 living during a sexual revolution, um, not just a tech, technological revolution. They go hand in hand, but you know we've lived through several te- sexual revolutions in the 1920s and 1960s, and uh, and now. We're living in a, a sexual revolution where things are exploding. Things are going beyond. Things are people are taking control. Are trying out things. They're more open about things than they ever were. Uh, things that were hidden, things we considered uh, behaviors we considered perverse, are now mainstream, um, and people are flaunting them. So we're we're definitely in a in a period of huge huge change. 
the internet technology is is bringing that on uh, very rapidly as well uh, and interacting with it. So, um, so it's a fascinating, uh, time to be, to, to be living in. Um, it's fascinating to, to work with patients who are exploring sexuality in these novel ways. I think we have to be very careful about our judgmentalness, about generational differences when we're treating people who are younger than we are and applying the norms that we grew up with to their generation because they have different norms, um, so it can create certain challenges. We didn't talk about thick treatment, but um, certainly everything we've talked about today can be uh, a challenge for the for the analyst, for the therapist. Right, and it, it is there in the book. You do talk about clinical cases mm-hmm. and also, um, you know, recommendations for working with these new sea changes in clinical practice. So it's important to note that. Um, any any upcoming projects that you're involved in? Well, I'm working. Um, <laughs> I'm writing a, a paper now on polyamory and kink, but I'm working on a book. That's a continuation of of this. I'm working on a book now on the uh, psychoanalytic treatment of psychosis. I'm on sabbatical now, and that's my sabbatical project. So uh, I have a lot of interests, as you, as you can tell. Um, but I've been teaching how to work uh, dynamically with psychosis for the last 20 years, and I decided to make a book out of it. So Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I'm looking forward to it and looking forward to interviewing on that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Thank I, you very I wanna... much. Yeah, I also want to say thank you uh, for taking time to to be with us today. Um, I guess until next time. Okay, thank you. Yep, thanks, Daniel.